millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before we start today's show, uh, Mid-Atlantic listeners, I'd like to implore you to go over to our new YouTube channel. Yes, you've heard it. We finally are putting our shows up on YouTube. Quite simply, go to YouTube, search for Mid-Atlantic Podcast to subscribe to our channel. It's incredibly important that you do so for the sake of the algorithm. Some jiggery poke, which I don't quite understand, but you can watch all the episodes there. And please, for the love of all things holy, please subscribe to the channel because it really will help me out. Now, plus, for an exclusive experience, visit royfield.com and sign up to our newsletter. Now, this will give you access to the live podcast recordings on Zoom, where if you are in the audience, you can engage and ask questions with our expert guests. So join us on this journey of exploration and understanding of the world of politics in the US, in the UK and globally. Subscribe and sign up today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic. I'm your host, Royfield Brown. Today we are diving into the riveting landscape of Chilean politics, a saga of transformation and upheaval spanning 2019 to 2023. We're joined today by Peter M. Savellis, professor in the Department of Politics and International Affairs at Wake Forest University, an expert who will help us to understand this dynamic period and what's happening this weekend. Uh, from the eruption of widespread protests in 2019, calling for social equality and a new constitutional framework to the election of Gabriel Boric, symbolising a generational and ideological pivot in Chile's governance. We're set to explore how these events have reshaped Chile's national identity. Professor, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. Listen, it's all great when we have real experts with us and, and we, we have one today. Chile is extending the state of emergency to cities in the north and south. Rioting continued in spite of a curfew imposed for a second consecutive night. Protesters clashing with police in many areas of the capital, Santiago. Eight people are known to have been killed since the unrest began on Friday, as Freya Cole reports. 
Soldiers on the streets of Santiago for the first time since the end of the military dictatorship. The curfew to end unrest has been extended for a second night. I'm convinced that democracy not only has the right, but has the obligation to defend itself using all the instruments that democracy provides and the rule of law to combat those who want to destroy it. Protests began after a rise in ticket prices for the capital's metro, a decision which has been reversed. But anger has widened amid the huge inequality between the rich and poor. Parts of Santiago's transport system have been destroyed. Several people have died and there's been mass arrests as looting and riots have spread across the country despite the return of the troops, the curfew and a state of emergency. Chileans continue to express their anger. If we're looking at this constitutional referendum, which is going to take place on Sunday, is it really apt for us to start in 2019 or should we start maybe in 1973? Where's the best place to start to try and understand the background? I think to understand the immediate background, 2019 is the place to begin. But really to understand, if you want to get a more profound understanding of how all the issues align to set up for the moment of 2019, you do have to go back to 1973. Absolutely. Okay, so let's go back to 1973, set us there, and give us those years of dictatorship that Chile's then going to go under. Yeah, so Chile is a pretty unique country in the world in so many different ways and has proven to be. And one of the ways it was unique was it was the first country in the world to democratically elect a Marxist to the presidency. Because it's a multi-party system, they elected this president with only about one-third of the vote, 33% of the vote. And according to the rules of the Chilean constitution, when such thing happens, there was three candidates in the race. When such a thing happens, and this is 1970, the Congress decides who is going to be the president. Immediately, the United States gets up to its old shenanigans and starts trying to interfere with the process to, to prevent this Marxist leader from becoming elected president to Chile. And the death, the recent death of Henry Kissinger has resurrected all this because he was one of the principal actors behind this with the Nixon administration. This plunges Chile into a period of instability, inability to govern because Allende does not have a majority in Congress, but also there's not big enough of a plurality in order to impeach him. So we have a classic case of deadlock and inability to govern. And this deadlock leads to the violent overthrow of the government, the bombing of the presidential palace on September 11th, 1973. This is when the Pinochet dictatorship takes over and under, undertakes a, a really deep transformation of Chilean society, mostly in terms of the introduction of a neoliberal model, privatizing education, privatizing the social security system, privatizing the uh, healthcare system. And this sets up for some tremendous inequality, but also deep reforms to the economic system. Some say these were fantastic and they saved Chile. Other people say they set up Chile for the vast inequality that exists today. Mm. And, and, and just to really underline what, what you said in terms of the amount of things which end up being privatized, even water. And that's going to be one of the key things, isn't it, in this constitutional referendum that people are going to try and amend that everything fundamentally is privatized under the, the under this new administration. So Chile is going to have some 17 years of dictatorship fundamentally under Pinochet. 
when Allende's government is toppled. How does Chile get out of that in uh, the early 90s? What Chile is then emerges onto uh, the world scene? Yeah, now, these dictatorships are very difficult to, to, to sustain. Domestically, there began to be opposition because the business community was upset that nobody would invest in Chile. Internationally, Chile was becoming the, the victim of sanctions. And so there was a whole lot of pressure to get out of this situation. This is beginning in the late 1970s, early 80s. So Pinochet holds a plebiscite on uh, his continued rule in 1980. And part of that plebiscite is a new constitution that's a plan for a transition to democracy. But it's a nine-year plan that will result in another plebiscite in 1988. But this constitution that is approved in that 1980 plebiscite becomes the constitution that's governing Chile today. And that's why I said we have to go back, because it's all about this new constitution that Chileans are going to try and replace this Sunday. Or if the referendum fails, the 1980 constitution will stay in place. Okay. Just before we, we started recording, I let out the bag that I don't know an awful lot about Chilean politics. Right. I absolutely don't. I can find it on the map. I'll tell you a little bit about the potted kind of colonial history and how it becomes independent. But the Chile is going to go on a relative economic, if not boon, the economic fortunes of Chile is going to be pretty strong from when it becomes a democracy up to, let's say, the mid-2000s. What are the key fundamental drivers that push Chile into being, as far as the OECD is concerned, a developed and an advanced economy? So a lot of people credit the, the Pinochet dictatorship with being the driver of Chile's economic miracle. But the economy had deteriorated so much during the early years of the Pinochet government, a lot of what he did was just recover lost territory. The real growth comes with the return of democracy in 1990, where we have spectacular growth where Chile is called the the tiger of, of South America, like the East Asian tigers, right? Those drivers are expansion of the mining sector, which has always been Chile's lifeblood, but also expansion into forestry, exports of wine, exports of fruit. All the fruit we here in the United States eat in the uh, winter, almost exclusively from Chile. So this builds a sort of real economic boom, but it's an economic boom for only a very small percentage of the population only the really people at the top. So the legacy of the Pinochet Constitution of 1980 is one that set up a system for the haves to, to earn a lot of money and really not very good distribution of the wealth, which puts Chile as the worst country for equality of the OECD, which is the root of this explosion, this social explosion that we see in 2019. Okay, so... Take us to 2019, because that's exactly where we are now. Uh, what is the, the straw that breaks the camel's back why people then start to protest in some violently? It's interesting because it's just fun to watch the international press and how it, how it interprets things. The, the driver of this thing, I'm not going to say the driver, I'm going to say the spark of this thing was about a 30 peso increase in public transportation fares. And people, the press was like, this is remarkable. All of this... They destroyed Santiago. People have been killed. There's been incredible violence. There's been incredible property damage, all because of a 30 cent increase in subway fares. That's absolutely just the sort of straw that broke the camel's back. This was a response to this tremendous inequality, but inequality not just of income, but in provision of health care, 
in education, in uh, social security and retirement, Chile had become fundamentally two different countries, one of the very, very wealthy and one of people that were struggling to make ends meet. There was a sense of injustice in the distribution and also a two-tiered system of healthcare, private and public, and the public being awful, two-tiered system of education, public being awful, two-tiered system of social security, the public system being awful, and the private system not even providing enough for people to retire with dignity. So in all of these ways, this was an explosion, not about this 30 cents. And the slogan began, people began to say, it's not about 30 cents, I'm sorry, pesos, it's not about 30 pesos, it's about 30 years. That was the slogan and the driver of this spectacular social explosion in 2019. Give us a sense of how widespread these riots actually were. Were they just confined to the capital, Santiago, or were they all over the country? They began in Santiago, but quickly spread all across the country with the prevalence of social media. People knew what was going on everywhere. And the scale of destruction was the biggest in Santiago, but also existed in the port city of Alparaiso, some cities in northern Chile and, and Concepcion in the south. The scale of destruction was tremendous. I actually, ironically, got on the day, I got on a plane leaving Santiago the day before the social explosion in October, the, the, the very day before. And as a political scientist, that makes me very sad because I would have loved to have been able to see it. Although the, 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 the sad outcome um, was, was simply terrible. I came back to Chile in December, and I could not believe the scale of destruction, even though I had read about it. Buildings burnt out, subway stations destroyed, businesses looted, destroyed, bus shelters pulled down, statues pulled down. A really pretty shocking destruction of the center of the city of Santiago. How did the Chilean media fundamentally report this, the reasons for it? And then also the, the scale of it. One thing that's really quite remarkable for me is that the international media didn't really talk about this. This is pre-COVID. I know that COVID is going to have a damping effect actually on the protests. But pre-COVID, international media really wasn't talking about it. So how was the Chilean media talk about talking about this widespread upheaval? There's a tremendous media concentration in, in Chile in the hands of socioeconomic elites and the upper class. And so in that sense, people, some people in the press and in public opinion op-eds said, oh, this is driven by exterior forces, meaning I think the Venezuelans, the Cubans, this has to be driven by exterior forces. This is not domestic. But as the scale of these protests grew into the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, it was pretty difficult to argue that this was about intervention from outside. This was really a spontaneous reaction that snowballed into something quite big. And then the press shifted a little bit its coverage to say more, we have a problem here, right? There's something going on here that political elites in this country need to think about. And then what was the, then the political uh, response? There is going to be a, a grand coalition which is going to come into power in 2021. But take us through what the president at the time did and then the other political machinations and maneuvering which goes around when they have such widespread protests. Part of the reason and part of the difficulty and the explanation for this, the, the, the intensity of this explosion was how 
tone deaf the government was. Because when the beginnings of the protests started and, and protesters were talking about this increase in bus fares, Chile has a variably priced metro system. It costs different, there's different fares for different times of the day. And the Minister of Justice actually said publicly, I don't know what this is all about. People could just get up earlier and go to work to get the cheaper fare. These are people that are commuting from the outskirts of Santiago downtown, sometimes two hours, right? And to get up earlier to get to work was just an incredible insult and showed the insensitivity of the government. At first, the, the government made certain concessions regarding the lowering the, the subway fares, regarding in, intervention in the pharmaceutical market to lower drug prices, a whole series of concessions that were just not enough until Chileans eventually demanded an end to this Pinochet 1980 constitution and a reboot of the constitutional process to write a new constitution for Chile that would address some of these inequalities. And you're listening to a recording of the podcast uh, Mid-Atlantic, which is actually now on YouTube. Woohoo! I'm now putting these things up after years of saying I was going to do this. I finally have done it. So if you go onto YouTube, type in Mid-Atlantic podcast, you should actually land up on our channel. So please, if you are one of our 5,000 podcast listeners who regularly download this episode, please go over onto YouTube uh, and subscribe to the channel. Really important how the algorithm works over there, that you go over there, lend your support, not only by uh, watching me in 3D and my guests, but also by subscribing to the channel. Super duper important. And if you wouldn't be so kind, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It's another way you can show your support for Mid-Atlantic, which is all about learning about countries around the world and also US and UK politics today. Uh, we're speaking to Professor Peter Savelis and we're talking about Chile and Chilean politics. So COVID is going to come and, and fundamentally put a stop to just about everything on planet Earth. And I'm presuming this has a deadening effect on these social, on the social people in Santiago and in Chile. It did, but not as much as you might expect. People were really angry. People were really angry. So this process continued to play out not at the scale that we saw pre-COVID, but it did continue to play out. And eventually, the government conceded that it would provide a mechanism to write this new constitution. There was no other way out of this situation. And a widespread agreement was signed across parties, a sort of agreement for social reconciliation that would unleash and meet to come up with a process to vote on a new constitution. Ultimately, what they agreed to was a plebiscite, a two-part plebiscite that had one question that said, are you in favor of a new constitution? Second question was, if so, should it be, elect should it be written by a popularly elected assembly of non-politicians or a combination of members of Congress and a popular, popularly elected body? The question on a new co constitution one by an astounding 78% of the votes said yes. That's why this rejection of the Constitution that might be coming on Sunday is astounding, because 78% of the people agreed that this should be, in, in, in October of 2020, that there should be a new Constitution written. The option of a, a completely popular elected assembly also won. Chileans wanted nothing to do with politicians in this process. So it was agreed that a 155-member constituent assembly would be elected in May of 2021. 
Chileans went to the polls and overwhelmingly chose independent candidates who had never served in public office before, many independents, and it was a very left-leaning body. And also there was provision made for indigenous communities as well. Can you speak to how important that was for Chilean politics? That was extremely important. This really became, first I'll deal with the indigenous issue, then I want to talk something else about gender parity. There were 17 of the 155 seats, 17 were reserved for Chile's First Nations, right? And this had been the case because indigenous populations had always been excluded from Chilean politics. There's only been a handful of indigenous leaders that have any kind of political positions in the country. So this was extraordinarily important. And equally important was that this was a uh, assembly that had to be characterized by gender parity. That is to say, not gender parity in the presentation of candidates, but gender parity in the results. So a series of mechanisms were used to ensure that this would be exactly 50% women and exactly 50% male. That is the first time in the world, again, another way Chile is unique, that this had ever happened. So what we have here is the setting up of a tremendously hopeful way forward. And unfortunately, it didn't play out that way. But it's still in 2021. Things are going to feel like the Chile is going to write for change. And we're going to have the, excuse my pronunciation, the Apribo Dignitad Coalition. So how, how did they emerge into this freebile, freebile atmosphere of change in Chilean politics? And, and, and who do they represent? Yeah, Apribo Dignidad represents left-wing parties in Chile. Three different alliances emerges, one of the left-wing party, one of the sort of central traditionalist parties, and again, these coalitions have changed names several times. So you're gonna have to you're gonna have to excuse me if I if I if I talk about each of the coalitions with the same name at a different time because they're the same entities, right? And but these are very loosely knit coalitions, right? That it's very it's it, that are are very permissive in who's going to be getting on these lists. So even though these are the major party coalitions. Most of these people that are elected are really not aligned with any political parties. And this is part of the problem, right? And this ultimately leads to the kind of raucous process we see in the drafting of the Constitution once the Assembly is seated to write it and to debate it. Okay, tell us about Gabriel Boric and how big was his victory? But then also, I think we should spend a little bit of time to deal with the right of Chilean politics. How are they dealing with not only the new country, the new atmosphere in Chile because of these mass riots and social protests, which have led to fundamentally the country saying that the old constitution, the Pinochet constitution, needs to go. So tell us about the, the new president, but then actually what the right then does in reaction. Yeah, the new, pro- the new president comes to power. There's a two-round election in Chile. And in the first round election, the, the, the sort of extreme right cast actually has a first round victory, right? The sort of Trump, Trumpy kind of pro Pinochet uh, character. In the second round election, Boric wins, I think, with 54 to 46% and is named president of Chile, the youngest president of Chile in history, 35 years old. But it, it's interesting. And I'll get to, I'll get to the reaction of the right in just a second. But as we watched, Boric's approval rankings declined very rapidly, shockingly rapidly. 
approval of the Constituent Assembly starts declining with them. So part of this is politics. Chileans eventually rejecting the sitting government. The right reacts by starting to paint the protesters as delinquents, as criminals, as looters, right? Not talking about the protesters as some sorts of agent for social change. But to really understand the, the view of the right in this process, we have to talk about when the Constituent Assembly is seated. So the Constituent Assembly starts to begin debate on the new Constitution, and part of the reason that this version of the Constitution, we'll call it version one, and then version two is the one that's voted on this Sunday, version one of the Constitution was written, debated in this raucous process. Many of the people came to the assembly with single issues, one thing that they wanted to see written on the Constitution. And the Constitution begins to become this laundry list of items rather than the broad framework that it, it, it might should, that it should have been. I call what happened democracy in real time, which undermined the process. Because what happened, the, the rules provided that any idea proposed had to be debated, had to be talked about, and either taken into consideration or not. And so many of these ideas, so-called crazy ideas, had to be debated. And then the right-wing dominated press said, look at these crazy ideas they're debating. But the ideas had no support. For example, they contended that the assembly was going to change the name of the national anthem. Somebody had proposed that, but it was soundly rejected. It never had a chance of passing at all. Also, the process itself was chaotic. There was, is this was the Zoom period, right? Documentation of a delegate joining the convention from the shower and leaving his camera on. Another faked leukemia diagnosis for for sympathy. Another delivered his proposal to the Constituent Assembly singing with a guitar. And so the right seizes upon this and says, look at this is a complete circus. And then once the document comes out, we have this lengthy document, 338 articles, 178 pages, guaranteeing rights for everybody. And the right seizes upon this to try and under undermine the proposal. In my own view, there was some problems with the Constitution, but it wasn't this crazy leftist Venezuela-type document that the right tried to paint it. And they did try and paint it that way. The far-right Republican Party in Chile finished in a first place in nationwide vote to choose members of a committee that will draft a replacement to the current constitution. It will have 22 seats in the 50-member House. Now, it's the second time that voters in Chile have been called to take part in the rewriting of the 1980 constitution. It was adopted during the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. Last September, a previous text produced by a constitutional assembly made up mostly of political independence was rejected by 62% of voters in Chile. We can now go across to uh, John Bartlett, freelance journalist based in Santiago. John, is this outcome surprising at all? Uh, surprising, yes, and uh, to an extent. But I also think that this was this was coming. The shift to the right in Chile has been uh, consolidated uh, over the last couple of years, particularly as we as we saw the rejection of the of the previous draft of the constitution. And as you say, the twenty two Republicans are, are going to have a huge say in uh, in the direction that, that Chile goes now. Jose Antonio Cast, who was a defeated Republican Party uh, candidate in the last presidential elections, uh, hailed this as a victory and said that this is uh, the direction that Chileans want to take their country in a more conservative. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Conservative direction. But do you think, though, that one of the issues was that uh, because Chile was going through this consultation and doing it so publicly, that maybe expectations were incredibly high before you even talk about exactly the composition and how people were uh, elected to those roles? And that is maybe in part one of the reasons why maybe the Chilean people have fallen somewhat out of love with the process. I think they've fallen out of love with everything, to tell you the truth. There's a real sense of disgust with the political class in Chile, rejection of traditional politics, rejection of traditional parties. I think you're exactly right about this hopefulness, because in the plebiscite of 1988 that unseated Pinochet, I was in Chile right after that plebiscite, and there was this sense of optimism, everything's going to change, everything's going to get better. After that first constitutional vote in Chile, fast-forwarding 30 years, there was this sense of optimism and hope that very rapidly evaporated as people became disillusioned with the process. Let's go back to 1988, because, and I must admit, I took us on breakneck speed from 1973 up to 2019. What's happened to those former agents of Pinochet and the trials of them, and how much is the stench of the dictator, the years of dictatorship, still with modern-day Chilean politics? Look, if we go across the Andes and we look at Argentina, the end of the, and I know you just had a pod on that just a while back with the Argentine election, the end of the Argentine government in 1982 with the invasion of the Falkland Islands completely took any legitimacy away from the government at all right? It was very easy to go after them. It was very easy to try them. Going back across the Andes in 1988 in Chile with this plebiscite, 44% of Chileans voted to try and keep Augusto Pinochet in power. That's a lot. That's a, a large percentage of the population. Also, according to the 1980 constitution, most dictators, if they're defeated, get on a plane and go to Miami right? There's some tropical destination. 
Pinochet literally packed his office at the presidential palace, moved across the street to the Ministry of Defense. He could see the presidential palace from his window, right? And he remained commander-in-chief of the armed forces. It was very difficult for the first governments to touch him for anything, any human rights abuses. I was living in Chile in 1991, and there were two military mobilizations during that period because it was perceived that the first government was going to go and and attempt trials, right? Everybody in the country felt like there was going to be another military coup in those two uprisings until the government pulled back. It wasn't until Pinochet's arrested in London in, I think, 1988, if I'm not mistaken, that opens up the way for some of these trials. But still, he himself is never trialed, despite being detained in London. The House of Lords ultimately determines that he's going to be sent home for health reasons, and then he springs out of his wheelchair when he gets to Santiago and looks just fine. And there's a limited there's a limited number of roundtables on human rights. The first is the Reddit Commission, which did a comprehensive study of all the human rights abuses that took place in Chile early on in the early democratic administration, documented them, wrote them down, provided some compensation for families that had experienced losses in terms of educational subsidies, other types of subsidies, a smattering of limited trials for the so-called caravan of death, but very few officers put in jail because by the time these some of these trials played out, many of these people have died. The style of Chile, was, unlike Argentina, was more of having these round tables of, of attempted reconciliation more than trials. And I find the, the word, re, word reconciliation interesting because I ask my Chilean friends all the time, can you define reconciliation for me? It's impossible to define. Is, is there reconciliation in South Africa, even though there was numerous commissions designed to get to reconciliation? How do we know when we get to reconciliation? And I find that in Chile, both sides are very dissatisfied feel like that that there was not sufficient punishment for these evils that were done, and there is still an underlying dissatisfaction. This seemed to, again, go away during the beautiful 1990s, but then when the protests erupted, the Carabineros, the police, which are an arm of the armed forces, were accused of widespread and many documented human rights abuses during the protests. So this fissure in Chilean society is alive and well. Now, spoiler alert, Prof, you did say that it looks like the new constitution is not going to be given the thumbs up on Sunday. Why? What are the polls looking at? And you've told us about the kind of wider political situation driven by, let's say, a media narrative. And some of the chaotic goings on with the constitutional convention, for want of a better word. But in in your own words, what do you think are maybe the two or three things which Chileans are fundamentally going to vote down this change in the constitution for? Okay, I just want to back up for some clarification because this the constituent assembly that I'm talking about that wrote this very progressive constitution that had gender parity rights for everybody doing away with much of the Pinochet baggage, that goes to a popular vote on September 4th, 2022, and is rejected. That liberal constitution that I'm talking about, that's rejected 
62 to 38%. There's another wide partisan agreement of leaders is convened to come up with version two. Now we're going to work on version two. And there was Thank consensus. you for the clarification. Version sure. Thank you. Version two. So version one is gone. That liberal, long constitution that I talked about is gone. And part of the reason it was rejected, to answer your question, the, you know, that rejection was this chaotic process, the a fierce campaign of disinformation on the right, saying that this was a constitution like Venezuela, that people were going to be lose their property rights. It established a plurinational nation, and, 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 and the opposition said, oh, this means that non-Indigenous people are not going to have as many rights as Indigenous people. So I think there was problems with the Constitution because it didn't reflect a majority of what Chileans believed. It was very left. And I think there was a problem with the right-wing smear campaign of the Constitution. That goes down in September. And I, I wanted to clarify because this is a dizzying process. <laughs> like, it's hard to keep track of it. I'm an expert. I can't keep track of this process, right? So a commission of 24 experts is convened to come up with a new idea and draft a new version of the Constitution, and they decide on a constitutional council. Now, this is the irony of the whole Chilean process. In On May 7th, 2023, the elections for this constitutional council are held, and the, the right sweeps it. The far right sweeps it. So now... We had this left-wing body, version one. The right-wing body drafts this constitution, version two, which has all sorts of problems with it. It's worse than the twenty. It's worse than the nineteen eighty constitution. It's worse than the nineteen the Pinochet constitution, right? So they put forth this incredibly conservative document that Chileans are going to consider Sunday, but it's just. One thing I want to say, because I know you probably want to get to that constitution, but one thing I want to say, again, the international press, Chileans are right wing, Chileans opted for the right, Chileans, they're conservative. No, the Chileans are in a mood of rejection of the status quo, right? They rejected that first constitution, and because the Boric government has gotten so unpopular, they went to the right and voted for the right. So now we have a very conservative document that will go on the table on Sunday. And that's the one I, I predict is going to be rejected when Chileans go to the polls. Okay. So d just so we, we understand and we have a little bit of a flavor of this constitution, can you just give us two or three things which make this very different from the current constitution, which people say needs to change? Okay. So first, I can say how different this is than the version one, the liberal one, and then I'll go to the original, okay? Version one, gender parity is gone. There's no mention of indigenous rights. There's no guarantees for LGBTQ communities. There was widespread reproductive rights in the, in the first proposal. Those are gone. There was widespread protections for human rights, many of which have disappeared in this new document. And I want to be fair and I want to be balanced. So now I'm shifting to version two, the conservative version, and let's compare it to the 1980. Because what's going to happen on Sunday is a contest between keeping the status quo, 1980 constitution, or approving this very conservative document. There are some things that are better about the proposal that's on the table Sunday. First, 
it was written in, the, in a democratically, by a democratically elected body, right? The 1980 Constitution was written by 12 people in the dictatorship, only one of whom was a woman, right? So at the very least, this is a democratic process. There are elements of the, the proposed Constitution that allow for decentralization, which I think are positive. And also, it does say that Chile is a social democratic state, which the 1980 Constitution doesn't say. But I'll get to that in a minute. So if we prepare, if we compare this to 1980, and my contention that the one on the table is worse, this one essentially guts abortion laws and says that Chileans have those about to be born have human fundamental human rights. Abortion legislation in Chile is not, it's not easy to get an abortion in Chile, but you can in cases of rape and fetus not being viable and the mother's health being in danger, right? But this new one could potentially eliminate even those rights. This, the document establishes a right of conscientious objection, saying that people for example, we've seen this in the United States saying, you know what? A lesbian couple comes to me and wants a cake. I'm not going to bake it. Those sorts of things. This provides for conscious ob- objection, which would give people the ability to not grant abortions if they do remain legal, to engage in LGBTQ discrimination, but also teachers to be able to depart from the Ministry of Education criteria for teaching and say, I don't believe that human rights abuses happened in Chile, so I'm not going to teach them, even if they're documented. It also solidifies the privatized nature of education, healthcare, and social security that's in the 1980 Constitution. The 1980 Constitution leaves room for a mixed system. This one really bunkers down on the idea of the privatization of the system. And finally, the new constitution would reduce the number of the Chamber of Deputies from 155 to 138, which would have really negative effects on representation of the country. It's a purely populist move. If you look across the world in terms of the number of members of Congress per population, Chile is already low. The Chilean House of Deputies is, is too small. If anything, they shouldn't be reducing it. They should be increasing it. So in all these ways, the document that we're going to see considered on Sunday represents a democratic, a setback, a step back for democracy in the country. Before we let people in the audience basically ask a question, because I'm sure their question is going to be somewhat better than mine. Let's say it is rejected. So we've had the constitutional, the People's Constitutional Convention, that gets thrown at this panel of experts and the right wing, that's going to get thrown out. Then what next for Chile? Again, we have a couple of likely paths forward. If we're surprised, and again, there's a lot of uncertainty about this vote because the most recent poll I saw this morning had had the reject at about 60% and the approved at 36%. Um, But that doesn't count many people that are undecided. The number of undecided voters was very high at the beginning and has been steadily decreasing. And as it steadily decreases, the trend has been having more of those undecided voters move to the reject side. Some are moving to the approved side, but more are moving to 
the reject side. So if the Constitution is approved, we're going to face a very difficult situation in terms of all those areas I've just mentioned. If it's rejected, we're going to end up with the 1980 the 1980 Constitution that currently governs Chile today. And what will happen then is it will fall to legislators and presidents in an extraordinarily divided country to come up with some sort of way to negotiate the reforms that are necessary in Chile, to negotiate. This injustice, this inequality has not disappeared. And even though Chileans rejected that left-wing constitution, 78% of them at one time said they needed a new constitution and that the Pinochet document had to be left behind. What happened here is a failure of the country's political elites to draft a consensus document. One reflected the left, one reflected the right, and Chileans still want a constitution, but they want one that's more moderate and, and one that's more acceptable to a broader swath of the population. It's interesting you, you how you characterize the change in the constitution from an American perspective. It's more like a bill of rights as opposed to a constitution. It's not really going through the mechanism of government, but it's about the rights, responsibilities actually of, of, the, of the individual. And the other thing, because this is fundamentally what the show is about, Mid-Atlantic, it's, it's to compare and contrast, is the interesting thing that you said about the head of the population, how many Chileans are represented in Congress, and Danaxi Chile is actually very low. I don't think you can get any lower than the United States in that regard, where a Congress person has a constituency or a district of, of half a million. So that is another wild in effect, unrepresentative kind of system. How to throw that in for, for the sake sake of the podcast? Can I, can I just add something to that? No, I want to add something to that because Redfield, my experience with this is shit. I was an intern in Parliament, in the British Parliament, when I was in my 20s. And I worked for an MP. And the relationships with the constituents were fundamentally different. You, you can't get near an American congressperson's office. You can't get near it. Whereas the MPs were incredibly accessible, right? So that's an important difference. 100%. And uh, a constituency in Scotland, which um, by law they're smaller in England, to give Scotland a higher percentage of MPs in Parliament because the English population is so much larger. I think it's somewhat, just over 20,000. And, and, and what you said is incredibly true. Each MP in the United Kingdom has a weekly surgery where they have to go and sit in an office and the constituents come and berate them or ask them uh, or tell them what they should be doing. And I think it's a, a, wonderful, a wonderful aspect of British democracy. And if only the average American had that level of access to a congressperson. But now is the time. Let's go to the audience because we do have a few people here who have um, decided uh, to uh, while away an hour with us. If you're in the audience, please unmute yourself and uh, let's ask a, a, a question uh, to Professor Peter Savellis about Chile and Chilean politics. And don't be shy. After, after that massive queue up there, that drum roll from on high. Thank you, Briar. The mic is yours, sir. Yeah, th- thanks so much for the interview. I was less informed with what's going on in Chile right now. I did have a question as I was reading a little bit in the background, listening to your talk. In one sense, this process seems to have been um, beautiful to reform a constitution, to have a commission that was appointed, to have a democratic process to confirm it. What lessons would you take away from other nations that might be considering having a democratically informed 
constitutional reform process where it could be both successful in terms of the constitution passing, but also being beneficial. And again, thanks so much for the interview. That's a fantastic question. So I think there were some errors made here. Some things were good. There were some errors made here. One of the criticisms of the first version of, of version one of the constitution was a long laundry list of rights and sometimes veering into policy. So let's remember and this, again, is if we want to make references to the English tradition, the English tradition is completely different than the American tradition. But in most traditions where there are written constitutions, constitutions, especially in presidential systems, constitutions are designed to be frameworks. And these frameworks do two things. They establish the rules. They ensure that the will of the majority is reflected in policy and that minorities are protected, right? In my view, the three basic things that they do. Unfortunately, the Chilean constitution went a bit far. I always say a constitution is not a piñata. It's not, it doesn't have something for everybody, right? It's a framework. So it's fine for a constitution to say, it's fine for a constitution to say, healthcare is a fundamental human right. But it's not okay to say, Healthcare will be provided by the NHS, right? That's, or any other body you want, or the state, or privately. It has to be, it's a human right, and then legislation determines how that right is enshrined. Chile went a little overboard on that. The second lesson I think is you need some professionals. Like politicians are held in such low esteem across the world, but that first constitutional body could have used some experts to talk about how this document could have been drafted, still ensuring a, prog a progressive vision for Chile, but having more within the constitutional tradition of the country, the constitutional language of the country. The, to, to use the, 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 the current term, the language of the, the draft was very woke, and this, in, in, some, for, in some sectors, was not acceptable in a constitutional document. The other lesson is, look out for illiberalism. Illiberalism can be used to undermine this process. This is something plaguing all political processes that we're seeing in the world right now. Second or, or third, I don't care remember what number I've had, everyday politics will intervene. Part of this process that has played out is because Boric has become, and President Boric has become incredibly unpopular. Also, institutions matter. The devil's in the details. One thing I didn't mention is part of the reason version one of the constitution was rejected was because voting for the first constituent assembly was voluntary, but voting on the final document was obligatory. So when people elected the first assembly, the leftists mobilized and won. They produced a document that ultimately became unacceptable to a majority. And we're going to see that right now. The right took this over because of institutional processes and they're going to produce a document that's not acceptable to a majority of Chileans. Excellent question there, Brian. I knew you had it in you, sir. I knew it. Is there another question before we wrap things up? I'm looking at you, Guanza, Igor. Also, got my eye on you, Jenny. Jim, you're always good, good for a question. Rick, Mr. Music Man or Victoria, do we have a question? I, I could shoot one, Royfield. Go for it, Jim. Yeah, I, I have to represent the ATL a little bit here and say that 
I, I agree that about your differences of access for congressmen here in the United States, with the exception of John Lewis. You could always get to his office, always. But my question for the professor is, with the specter that we have next year of Agent Orange resuming power in the United States, how, do we have any lessons from the Pinochet government for us here on that? That's an interesting. Do you mean on how to respond to a dictator? Yes. <laughs> the only thing, the, the, again, the only thing I can say about this, I'm, I'm not sure about what I can say, like how a democratic opposition handles this. The question of it is about, are the institutional safeguards strong enough? Okay. Undoubtedly, the Supreme Court in the United States has veered tremendously rightward, right? But with the question of whether, I can't remember which state, whether it was Arizona or, or Georgia, when the question of whether those votes were valid came before the Supreme Court, it issued like a four-word decision rejecting the claims of the Trump administration, even though it's becoming a reactionary court. I'm just hoping there's institutional safeguards against this and that some majorities in Congress will play out in a way that are going to stop him from being able to do what he's likely to do. But I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic about that. I know that doesn't... So you're, you're, saying, you're saying keep hope alive. I, yeah, but I... Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but I, I just had a discussion with a colleague about this. I, I'm not optimistic about this. I'm not optimistic about that. You'll note my surname is C of Ellis. I'm feverishly exploring my Greek heritage to find my Greek citizenship and my EU passport. Are there not enough institutions within the United States to reject a wholesale or a partial reimagining of American governance? And the one thing which I, I was really struck by in Trump's first term, definitely towards the end, was that the American military did very subtly uh, remove itself from the political discourse, specifically over George Floyd. And it, and actually, it very clearly said, we have this constitutional position and we, we will, we're we not going to get in the middle of a, a political football. We are the United States military. Surely, away from the three branches of government, etc., etc., there are enough blocks if somebody, if, a, if the president of the United States decides to become somewhat of a dictator. I was thinking about that question this morning, in fact, because the military is charged with defending the Constitution, but the president is the commander-in-chief of the military and the armed forces. So a note of optimism would be that perhaps there could be some pressure, right? Not so subtle pressure. Not We're not talking about surrounding the White House with tanks, but there could be some pressure on defending the Constitution. But one thing I want to point to that people forget because they perceive, oh, this is Latin America, just another dictatorship. Chile was a democracy for 143 years before the coup. It was one of the strongest democracies in Latin America, one of the strongest democracies in the world. It had a rule of law. It had transparent politics. If you tried to bribe a policeman, you would be put in jail. They followed the law. The military 
was perceived as above politics and clean. It was the infiltration of a few officers that really upset that long tradition. So we're not talking about a banana republic here. We're talking about a strong democracy. And what frightens me as an American is that we tend to think that democracy is invincible. No, it's not. People thought that in Chile. People think that around the world. People have always thought that. And Americans have a certain arrogance about their political institutions saying that, oh, that could never happen here. I've got news for you. It happened here on January 6th, right? So that's the pessimistic note. The optimistic note is perhaps there are enough institutional guardrails to let us be able to survive for four years if that happens. There is a question in, in the chat from Zoom user. Uh, Chile joined China's Belt and Road Initiative five years ago in 2018. Have you noticed more benefits or detriments from this alliance? I'm not an expert in international relations. I do domestic Chilean politics. But I would just say that even governments of the right are willing to sign on to China. Governments of the left are willing to sign on to China because China has displaced the United States as the most important market for Chilean products. And that's likely going to continue as lithium becomes a more important international commodity. So I think the, there definitely have been benefits for Chile from this alliance. I would differ when I would be talking about some African countries or smaller Latin American countries whose states don't have the capacity to resist some of the negative influences of China. Chile is a big boy, and it's a small country, but it's a big boy in the trading blocks of the Pacific Rim. So I think it's going to be strategic about making sure this alliance works for it. And it has, a, has very sophisticated economists, a very sophisticated diplomatic corps that I think can help Chile avoid some of the detriments that we've seen in some other countries. Great question, Zoom user. Last question for me, then we're going to wrap it up. Argentina, the, the neighbor next door, has a brand new president, uh, an extremist, a libertarian, a maverick, a mad dog, as they call him in Argentina. What you Call him whatever you want. How is that going down in Chile? You mean what do they think of him? Yeah. I think they're, I, I think the madman next door has zero interest in any sort of problems with Chile, right? So on the international front, I don't think that's going to be an issue at all. There's no talks of trying to buy the Falkland Islands, or I'm sorry, of trying to buy the Easter Island or anything like that. Trump tried to buy Greenland from Denmark or whatever the case was. I think there's more of a threat that Felipe Cast, the, the sort of version of Trump, Chile's own domestic version of Trump, could gain more power if the other kind of options on the table fail. But my only qualifier to that is Argentina has almost invented populism in Latin America with Juan Perón, as you know from your last segment, right? Chile has no tradition of populism that's a parallel to that. Chileans historically have not been attracted by these kind of populist appeals. So I'm a little skeptical that somebody like um, um, could emerge in, in Chile. But I said that about the United States before as well, and I was completely wrong. Um, in terms of domestic public opinion, I would have to say what I've seen is most Chileans have the same opinion of him as they have of Donald Trump that is nuts. Professor Peter Civellas, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and 
illuminating us with the machinations of constitutional politics in Chile. Latin America's most advanced democracy, according to the OECD. Um, I know that you've done a certain amount of writing because you're a professor. If people wanted to maybe catch up with some of your writings, go to your website, etc., could you give us the address of those and where can people find you on the socials? You can go to, just if you can spell my name, petercavellis.com. And my Twitter is some, some version of my name. I'm on too many socials to remember which is the handle on which one. Just Google my name and go to Cialis. Yeah, petercavellis.com has my Twitter feed on it. Yeah. Brilliant. Go there if you want to catch up with any of the professor's work. If they're, interested, if they're interested in this constitutional debate, something I really recommend is a colleague and I, Jennifer Piscopo, recently published a piece in Journal of Democracy. And in the Journal of Democracy piece, immediately, the next issue, there was a response refuting our entire argument. So if your listeners want to get engaged in this debate, search Journal of Democracy, Chile, and this debate will come up immediately. It, it, it set off a firestorm on Twitter of uh, people who agreed and disagreed with each of our arguments. I'm sorry, on X. Just call it Twitter. Let's just call it Okay, Twitter. all right. We'll just agree to call it. Uh, there you go, folks. And uh, that's been another episode of Mid-Atlantic. We are going to have uh, the band is getting back uh, this week. So on Friday, you should have the panel going through uh, the entrails of US and UK politics. So we're going to go back to our regular format. Next week, we have another great set of speakers, which I'll whet, whet your appetite about those as well. And also, two days on from now, because I'm recording this on Monday, on Wednesday, I record with Professor Benny Morris again, and but also with a friend of ours from Clubhouse. And we're going to look at the Six Days War and how that really shaped the modern Middle East obviously in respect to the current war in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. We're going to have US-UK politics this week, a more deep dive into Palestinian and Israeli politics. You've got lots of content. Please, for the love of all things holy, don't ask you for money. There is no Patreon here. I don't say give me $1 a month or two. Please go on to Apple iTunes. Write a review for the podcast. But if you use Spotify, go on to Spotify writing reviews is the best way you can support me and having great guests on this podcast if you listen to the podcast don't forget we're now also on youtube so if you want to see what exactly what i look like which is uh, somewhat balding and gray please head over onto youtube type in mid-atlantic podcast and you'll get onto the channel and subscribe to it whether you decide to view the videos or not the subscription alone is incredibly important so please go do that it's left to center politics is right thinking politics but we try not to demonize our right-leaning brothers and sisters we try and, and meet them in the public space the commonwealth where the, the the arena of ideas is fostered but whether it is chile and um its turbulence to try and find a new constitution whether it's argentina whether it's the rise of trump there is something which is really uh, knitting all of these things together, which is the play out of 40 years plus of neoliberal economics and the fact that wealth inequality has been exacerbated everywhere in the world. Uh, and this was the spark which finally lit those protests in 2019 in Chile. It was the, and it was something, as the professor said, 
as seemingly as mundane as just a 30 peso increase on tube travel. And people said enough's enough because the bottom 80% is being fundamentally squeezed. Yes, Western economies are growing, but they are growing exponentially for the top 10%, the top 20%, not for the lumpen mass. And that is the reason why we need to do away with neoliberal economics. I've been Royful Brown, speaking to Professor Peter Ciavelles. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Been a pleasure to be here, Royful. Thank you. Uh, Can we have you again, sir? I'd be delighted. Uh, Listen, you're a rock star. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.